Well, good evening. I would try that again, but I don't anticipate a much better response, so we'll just call it good. Gave you an extra hour for those of you who were in choir, and I saw some of you still yawning this afternoon. I thought, my goodness, you had extra time, and maybe it was just the nap still with a lingering effect. Anyways, Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be tonight. Hebrews chapter 12. A week ago, Friday night, Susie and I uh, drove over to Wheeler and met Brad and Amy Hyatt for supper and had a good time of fellowship with them. And we were talking about church life because that's somewhat inevitable when you get two preachers together over food. And so anyways, we were talking about church life. And he said one of the things that he so appreciates about our church is the return attendance on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Uh, he said their church, you know, on a good Sunday will have between 60 and 70, but he said it doesn't matter how many we have on Sunday mornings. It's anywhere from 15 to 25 on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And he said it's just a blessing to be at a church where the people come back. And I want you to know that I, too, consider that to be a blessing. And I know you're not here for me. Uh, I trust that you're not. I know that you're here because you want to be in the house of God. There are plenty of distractions out there that could keep you out of church. And I just want you to know that it's a blessing to me to look up on a July 4th weekend. I mean, we really could have a skeleton crowd tonight. It could be pretty sparse, but you are here, you're in your place, and I just want you to know it's a blessing, all right? That has nothing at all to do with the service tonight. I just want you to know it's a blessing to this preacher, and it makes preaching a whole lot more fun when people are here. It just does. And it shouldn't be that way, but it is. That's right. It is, it is that way. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will get started. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight. And, Lord, I am thankful for your people being here this evening. It is a blessing to me. And, Lord, I have to believe that it is a blessing to you as well to know that people are taking time out of their day whenever there are so many things that could have their heart, that could have their attention, and yet they have chosen to be in the house of God tonight. And so I'm sure that you are pleased with that as well, and I pray that our lives would be pleasing to you. God, I pray that you'd bless now the effort to preach your word. I pray that you would use it. God, as just a reminder that we need in our lives today, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, you may remember that last week we uh, were not in our study because of the fish fry, and we knew that we would have guests, and so we did a little bit of a different service. So it's been two weeks since we have been in our study of Hebrews, and I just want to remind us of things because of the context, how it ties in to an extent to tonight's message. So remember that several weeks ago we were watching as the writer was uh, obviously writing to these believers, and he spoke of the chastisement of the Lord. And what that did is it, given, it gave indication to this thought, to this idea, that some of the hard times and some of the difficult days that they were dealing with and going through, they may have been connected to the chastisement of God in their lives as a result of sin. And so as we've worked our way through this passage and dealt with the different texts, one of the things that the writer said was this, is that we ought to reverence and we ought to appreciate the chastisement of the Lord in our lives because that is an indication of a child of God's relationship with God the Father. If there is no chastisement, then there is no relationship. 
He also talked about how the chastisement of God brings about the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of peace, and that too is true when we think about it, that whenever we yield ourselves to the chastisement of God, it is going to produce in us then a right manner of living, which then creates in us as a byproduct a spirit of peace and a feeling of peace, knowing that we are no longer at odds with the Lord because of the way we are living. And then last week, as we looked in verses 12 and 13, we watched as, or two weeks ago rather, the basic gist of the message was this. Now, get over it, get your attitude right, and start doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that's not a fun message to hear sometimes, is it? Because we want to mope, we want to pout, we want to continue on with the poochy lips, so to speak. We want to uh, get all of the mileage out of it we can. And the writer said, now listen, that's not the way to do it. Straighten up, get your attitude right, change your actions, and sometimes we need the rebuke, don't we? We do. All right, so that being said, tonight we're going to look in another passage, of course. But before we do, I want to make an assumption of you. It may not be smart of me, but I'm going to make it anyways. All right, I'm going to make an assumption of every one of you. And here is the assumption. If this is not true of you, just feel free to ignore the next couple of moments. Most of us do not enjoy uncertainty. Is that true? Most of us do not enjoy <clears throat> uncertainty. I'll illustrate that a couple of ways, and then we're going to transition that just a little bit. But how many of us have ever bought a used car? Most of us have bought a used car at some point, right? So what do we want to the greatest degree possible? We want to be certain that what we are buying is a decent car, correct? You want to make sure that this thing hasn't been totaled out and just been put back together by Bob and Joe in the garage in the back of the house. You understand that. And you want to make sure that the odometer is right. And so as to much of an, uh, as much as you can, you want to be certain that what you are buying is a good used car. We might say it like this if we're going on a trip and we've got some hotel reservations made. We want to be somewhat certain that the place we're going is clean and in a good neighborhood and somewhat inviting, things of that nature, right? You and I probably don't just book hotels randomly without looking at some pictures at least to see what we're getting into. All right, why do we do that? Because to the degree that we can, to the extent that we can, we like there to be a measure of certainty. Now, think about that truth, think about that thought in light of people. Do you enjoy a certain measure of certainty as it relates to people? I do, okay? And, and that would mean this, that I do not enjoy uncertainty with people. All right? Meaning, I, I don't like dealing with people that I can't depend on. You understand what I'm saying, right? If, if I have no confidence in this person, if I have no degree of certainty that this person will show up when they say they're going to show up or do what they said they're going to do, I, I don't enjoy dealing with people that like that probably any more than you enjoy dealing with people like that. Okay? <laughs> you know, if a person says that this is what they are, I want to be able to believe that that's what they are. 
Get the cobwebs out and at least nod our head just a little bit, okay? If this is what they say they are, then be that. And I want to be able to know that this is what the person really is. I don't enjoy being around the people who are just whatever crowd, whatever the crowd is. I want to know this is who they are no matter what, whether I like it or not. At least you can know that this is who the person is. All right, so we're going to somewhat agree on this thought that we don't enjoy uncertainty. We much prefer to have some measure of certainty in our lives. Now, that being said, tonight we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I began looking at a couple of weeks ago. And whenever I began looking at it a couple of weeks ago, here was the first thought that came to my mind. Oh, man, this is a hard text. I don't want to deal with it because such passages exist, okay? Now, in my office, I have commentaries, and one in particular that I like to read, especially as we've gone through the book of Hebrews. And so I knew for certain that this commentary would be of help to me. So this week, as I was getting ready for the service tonight, I pulled out the commentary. I began reading, and one of the very first things the writer said was this, this is a difficult passage. And I thought, you jerk. I have come to you for help. And all you are saying is, this is a tough one. Basically, good luck. So we're going through the service tonight, looking at this portion of Scripture. I'll say more about this in just a moment. I don't know with 100% certainty everything that's being communicated, but I do know enough to feel confident in preaching this message tonight. So notice in verse number 14 what the writer says. He says, follow peace with all men. Follow peace with all men. You may or may not remember that word follow from our study of 1 Corinthians. A couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse number 1, we watched as Paul wrote to the believers of Corinth and said, follow after charity. If you remember the word, you may remember this what it means, it means to seek after something earnestly or to endeavor to acquire something. You may remember from that service on Wednesday night that I conveyed this thought, I tried to make this point clear, that this word follow, nothing about it indicates a passive approach. It's not anything by way of a casual nature. It's not anything that you just kind of, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. That is not at all what the word implies or suggests. So the word to follow means this, to seek after something earnestly, to endeavor to acquire it. And so what it means is with some measure of passion, with some measure of intensity, here is what you are striving to do. So what is it that he said to do? He said to follow peace, to seek after this, to go after it earnestly, to follow peace with all men. So what does it mean whenever he speaks of peace? It means this, for there to be unity or harmony. For there to be unity or harmony. Now, again, we've got to think about the context in which this statement has been made. All right, this is message number 58. So if you think about this, with the number of interruptions, here's what's happened. It's been well over a year that we've started this study, and I say that for this reason. It did not take the readers of this letter over a year to get to this point, all right? 
They very much understood the context of what the writer was saying. They were very easily connecting the dots. But since you and I have been so chopped up in this, and, or not we have not, but the passage has been so chopped up as we've gone through this, we may have forgotten what was written in chapter 10. You may remember that the persecution or the difficult days, the hard times that the believers were going through, it was from the result or it was as a result or by the hands of other people. This was not just, you know, I don't know, difficult days, hard times, whatever it may be, just things that could not be explained. These individuals who are being written to right now, they could put a name and they could put a face to the people who had made their lives miserable. So as a result of that, here is what you can know, because human nature has always been the same, and that is this, that if someone was making their life miserable, there was certainly friction between the two parties. Is that fair to say? If somebody in your life is making your life miserable, there is going to be a measure of friction there, right? All right, so if you think about this, here is what the writer says, follow peace with all men. So what does it mean to follow peace? It means this, to pursue this, to seek after it with a measure of earnestness, to endeavor to acquire this, you are striving to find unity and harmony with who? With all people. Do you think it was possible for the people who, who were reading this, do you think it was possible that there were some reading that saying, I've got to be at peace with them. I, I've got to strive for unity and harmony with them. Don't you know that there were some who read those words and immediately the face of that individual popped up, the name of that individual popped up, the very one who was responsible for some of the frustrations that they were dealing with, the difficult days that they were dealing with. Don't you know that they heard those words and they thought, I've got to try to get along with that guy? No doubt there was a challenge associated with that. Now, I want us to think about that for just a moment because I want us to think about this truth as it relates to you and I, that sometimes God allows people to come into our lives that we don't necessarily see eye to eye with, correct? So as a result, there are times that God allows people to come into our lives, and I know this isn't anything new, but I want us to think about this. God allows people to come into our lives, and those individuals know how to push our buttons. They know how to get under our skin. They know how to irritate us. They know how to bother us. They know how to make our lives miserable and create friction in our lives. Do they not? Okay, so whenever God allows that to happen, if you and I are honest, here's what we know. Our sin nature immediately kicks in, and more times than not, when we're not thinking about it, whenever that person who causes us the problems, who makes our life difficult, who irritates us, however you'd like to describe it, whenever that person does what they do to irritate us and it creates within us that friction, it is then difficult for you and I, if we're honest, to follow after peace with them. 
to seek and to strive for unity and harmony with them, that is not what our flesh wants to do. Our flesh says, you don't like me? Fine, I don't like you. If you're not going to be nice to me, I don't have to be nice to you. You're not going to be cordial? I don't have to be cordial. I'm not going to do anything or go out of my way in any regard to make this relationship any better than it already is. That is how our flesh works, if we're honest. And the writer said to these believers who certainly had people in their lives who were causing them problems and giving them fits, he said, now listen, as a Christian, here is your responsibility to follow after peace. I don't want to. Never asked you that. You're a Christian. Follow after peace. You do everything you can. Family member, co-worker, church family, neighbor, whoever it is, you do everything you can to make this relationship peaceful, harmonious, unified, what it's supposed to be. Can you change their behavior? No, but you can determine how you're going to behave, what you're going to pursue, and so what you need to pursue and follow after and seek is a peaceful relationship with this person. After that, he said, follow peace with all men and holiness. The word follow still being implied there. So what does it mean whenever the writer speaks of holiness? Well, he is speaking of sanctification, which is also dealing with the idea of living a pure and sin-free lifestyle. A manner of life that is pure and clean from sin. What have we just been dealing with in the previous verses? Chastisement. What was the implication? The implication was this, that some of what you're dealing with is because of your sin. So he says to them, now you've got people who have been causing you problems. Some of this very well could be your fault, so what do you do? You follow after peace and you follow after holiness, a sanctified, set-apart, holy, pure free from sin, manner of life. That's what you go for. That's what you pursue after. Is perfection ever to be accomplished by any individual? No. (laughs) Perfection will never be accomplished. But what is supposed to be the pursuit? The pursuit is supposed to be a life that is as free of sin as possible. Now, we hear that should be fairly common sense, right? That you and I should be working on sin in our lives as much as they should have been working on sin in their lives. We're aware of that, correct? Okay. That being said, let me ask you something. You don't have to respond, but just answer the question. Are there times in our lives where we do not follow after holiness the way we probably ought? Certainly. How is that even possible? 
Well, let's think about it. Sometimes sin is enjoyable, is it not? Okay, so because sin is enjoyable, we don't really want to quit. I'm enjoying this sin, so why would I want to quit whenever I'm having a good time? So we know it's wrong. We know that it's not what it's supposed to be. We understand that this isn't how it's, you know, designed for the child of God. But because we're having a good time, we go ahead and we live in that sin. And, and so we know that we ought to be following after holiness, just as the readers knew that they should be following after holiness. But because we're enjoying our sin, well, we don't really want to put that aside so that we can pursue holiness or righteous living. I think sometimes this stands in the way of us pursuing holiness as we ought. We get comfortable with our sin. Maybe this has never happened to you, but for some of us this has certainly happened. It's not that it's fun. We're just used to it. This is who we are and this is what we've determined that we will always be. And so we reach a point that we don't even expect to get any kind of a victory over the sin that is now a part of our lives. So we don't follow after holiness like we ought. Let me ask you if this has ever happened. Have you ever compared your sin to the sin of someone else and because sin in your life looked better than the sin in their lives, your sin wasn't as much of an issue for you then? Like three of us have done that. You know, I, I've looked at my sin and I've thought, well, hey, compared to what I'm doing, their sin is far worse than mine and, and my sin isn't near as intense or to the same degree as theirs. And so I'm just going to continue living with my sin. Now, friends, whatever the reasoning is behind you and I not following after holiness, I just want to remind us it's not a good enough reason. It doesn't matter if we're enjoying our sin. It doesn't matter if we're comfortable with our sin. It does not matter if our sins aren't as serious as someone else's sin. The call for you and I and the charge to you and I is no different than it was 2,000 years ago to these readers. As a child of God, we are supposed to follow after holiness. That is what we're supposed to pursue. That is supposed to be our aim. That is supposed to be our goal. It should be our desire that we would live in such a way that we could be free from sin. Now, again, we'll never reach perfection, but that should always be what we're striving for. So if we know we have a struggle with our temper, we should be working on our temper. If we know we struggle with jealousy, we need to be working on our jealousy. If we know that we struggle with some kind of problem, with some kind of a habit, with some kind of an addiction, that should be our desire to get victory over this, to never get comfortable with our sin. So here's the writer writing to people who, again, the implication is, is some of your sin is responsible for the problems that you are dealing with today. So maybe if you would take care of the sin in your life, some of the problems would go away. But at the same time, while you've got strife and conflict with the people in your lives, you need to do everything you can to make peace and to have unity and harmony to the extent you are able. 
So if the passage stopped right there, here's what we would say. Child of God, follow after peace and follow after holiness, follow after purity. We could all say amen, go on our way and not have any problems. But the passage continues. What did the writer say? Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Without which no man shall see the Lord. What does it mean to see the Lord? That means to behold Him. To look upon Him. So now the question is this. What did the writer just say? Well, it seems like the writer just said that if a person does not follow peace and holiness, then that person is not going to see the Lord. Now, let's be honest. If we had that passage and that passage alone, here's what we would say. If a person doesn't follow after peace, harmony, unity, and that person does not follow after holiness, then that person is not saved and they will never behold the Lord. There's only one problem with that. There are other scriptures that have to be considered, right? So you have to consider this thought. If my salvation is dependent upon my pursuit of peace and holiness, then my salvation is then no longer dependent upon the grace of God and the power of God. It is then dependent upon my works. You have to answer this question. What is the correct degree or the correct pursuit of holiness and peace to be saved? And that's a challenging question if that's what you're going to base all this upon, right? So then you have to ask this question. Well, could you be saved but you didn't pursue peace and holiness like you should? So you lost your salvation? Well, the Scripture seems to indicate that's not true. And then the Scripture also gives an allowance for this reality, that there are people who live backslidden lives and they are saved, and as a result of God's chastisement and judgment, they have even so much as experienced death. And so you have to reconcile this truth that the writer is not saying that one's salvation is dependent upon their pursuit of peace and holiness. That's not what he's saying because it does not line up with the rest of Scripture. So then your question to me might then be this, so what does it mean? I don't know. I know there are enough passages out there that let me know I don't have to work for my salvation. It is not up to my ability to hold on to salvation long enough to be able to see the Lord. So to be very honest with you, I have to tell you, I don't know with 100% certainty what the author is trying to communicate, but I do know this well enough to say that what can be stated is this. Is if a person does not pursue peace and holiness, it at least creates suspicion of one's future of seeing the Lord. Does this make sense? 
You've got someone who would identify themselves as a child of God. You've got someone who would identify themselves as a saved person. And, and that would be their testimony. Well, here's what you and I know, <clears throat> that at the end of the day, you and I are not the Holy Spirit. just want to remind us of this, okay? We're not the Holy Spirit. So we do not know who is and is not saved. All we can go by is a person's testimony of salvation. But here is what I would also say. That when a person claims to be saved, but they have no desire to follow after peace with all men, and they have no desire to follow after holiness, at best, here is what it does. It makes room for serious questions about the person's salvation, and it causes there to be much uncertainty as it relates to their testimony, because the only thing that you and I can see is not their heart, but the works coming from their lives. Is that fair to say? And so here's what happens. I know I'm not the exception to this. This has happened to every one of you, I'm sure, at some point. You talk to someone... And at some point, faith comes up in conversation. You talk to someone, and at some point, a relationship with Christ comes up in conversation, and they say something like this, Oh, I'm a Christian. But you know they don't follow after peace. They're very selfish individuals. They're people who are consumed with themselves. They're not mindful of anyone else. They're not mindful of the feelings or, or the desires of anyone else. They're, they're concerned only with themselves. So you know them, yet they call themselves a Christian. What do their actions create in your mind immediately? A measure of uncertainty. And you have these conversations with people who identify themselves as Christians, and you can tell in their lives that a pursuit of holiness is not anything they're concerned about. Would we not be honest tonight and say, it can't help but make you wonder? They call themselves a Christian, but they engage in this, and they don't care. They do this, and they don't mind. They participate in this, and it's just a manner of life for them that they never even think about changing or correcting or altering. The, the truth of it is this, is that whenever you and I see someone, and they have no pursuit of peace, they have no pursuit of holiness, at the end of the day, we cannot say, sir or ma'am, you are not saved, but we could be honest and say this, based on your lifestyle, I've got some serious serious doubts, I'm not able to be real certain as it relates to your testimony of salvation. I'm sure I mentioned this some time back, but a couple of years ago I had lunch with someone who was quickly falling out of church. Their life was not going the direction at all that it was supposed to be, and here's what they said. They said, listen, I just want you to know you don't need to worry about my relationship with the Lord. Now, to them, I said, okay. But in my heart and mind, you know what I was screaming? I do have to worry about your relationship with the Lord. 
Because what you profess and what you are living, they're not at all the same. What you are suggesting to be true in this direction you are choosing for your life, it is not at all the same. It would be completely different if you professed salvation and you were pursuing holiness and you were pursuing peace. But because you profess salvation and holiness is no concern of yours, certainly, I have to say it makes me wonder if you, sir, will ever see the Lord. Not because you're not truly saved and, and you didn't work hard enough to maintain it and you lost your salvation, but it makes me wonder, did you ever truly get saved? Because if you were truly saved, it seems as though you would have some kind of a desire to pursue things like peace and holiness. So I look at this spirit that I have within me. Maybe not within you to the same extent. I don't know. But I look at this spirit that I have within me. And what do I want? As much as I can, I want there to be certainty. So if somebody says, I'm a child of God, here's what I want. I want there to be enough evidence to, to prove that this testimony is authentic and real and genuine. And that should be considered a fair desire of mine, right? Right? It shouldn't be that anyone says, oh, you're expecting too much from people. No, that's what the writer said. Do these things. So that's where I'm at in my relation with other people. But I want us to think about this as well. And you can probably already see where this is headed, but I want us to think about it anyways for just a moment. You and I should desire to live in such a way that we would not create any uncertainty in the heart and mind of anyone else as it relates to our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do we understand this? I like certainty you like certainty. Nobody really seems to enjoy uncertainty. And what I'm trying to remind us of tonight is this. Is that you and I should so desire to live in such a way that people would say with certainty that this person's testimony and this person's manner of life are the same. It should be that we strive for peace with all men, so much so that people would say something like this, they're the real deal. No one else can get along with that guy, but this person can. No one else can get along with this lady, but this person, they know how to get along with them. They work at it, they strive after it, and you can just see in them a patience. You can see in them a, a willingness to be long-suffering. You can see in them a spirit of forgiveness. You can see in them that kind of a spirit that says, I'm going to love you no matter what. That should be our desire that we would live in such a way, following after peace, that anyone who would look at us would say, you know, just the way that they interact with other people gives me confidence in their salvation. We should have a desire to remove all uncertainty. 
And it should be that you and I would desire to live such a holy life that our lives would be free from sin, so much so that people would say, you know, they are the real deal. You just watch them, you just listen to them, you just you just kind of step back and just see how they conduct themselves. They're real. They're genuine. You and I do no one any favors whatsoever if we create a question of uncertainty in someone else's heart and mind as it relates to our relationship with God. Does this make sense? If you don't believe this, talk to someone who is saying goodbye to a loved one and they're standing there saying, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I mean, mom said that she was, dad said that he was, or, or my brother or my sister or my friend said they were, but man, they're, they're just... There wasn't a whole lot of evidence, I'm telling you. It it, it, it was a pretty ungodly lifestyle in a lot of ways. I'm just saying, for the person who has lived that way, they're not doing anyone a favor by creating that measure of uncertainty in the mind of that other individual. And I'm just saying to you and I, again, that everything about our manner of lives should reinforce our testimony of salvation And part of that, if nothing else, includes to the extent that we follow after peace, a right relationship with others, and that we follow after holiness, a life that is free from sin. And so tonight, I'm going to ask a question. I know it seems like a dumb question, one that probably doesn't need to be asked, but I'm going to ask it anyways. And the question would be this. Are you doing everything you can to remove uncertainty in the hearts and minds and lives of the people who know you? Are you doing everything you can to make certain in their minds that your testimony of salvation is genuine and real and authentic and they have nothing to concern themselves with by way of your testimony? Now, again, I know that seems like a question that probably doesn't even need to be asked because, Brother Kyle, don't you know who you're talking to? Yes. And I know that if we're not careful, we can have a different manner of conversation away from the house of God than we would ever have in the house of God. We can find pleasure in things away from the house of God that we would act like we were disgusted by in the house of God. We can let things go that are away from the house of God that we would never let go in the house of God. Are we doing everything we can to remove the doubt, to remove any uncertainty? Are we doing everything we can to make certain that people know that what we claim is real and genuine and authentic 
or is there some peace and some holiness that we need to follow after to a greater degree? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray you'd help us tonight to consider this pursuit of peace and this pursuit of holiness. And God, whether or not what we say and what we do actually agree with each other. Lord, I know that we like to think ourselves as good people. We like to think ourselves as those who really have very little to improve upon. But it could be that there are some in here this evening, they know that their testimony away from the house of God is not what it should be, and it's probably created some doubt and some uncertainty in the minds of others. So, God, I pray that you'd help us to realize it's not right, it's not how it should be, and that you'd help us to change it. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.